0: You're listening to Martin Wolf's podcast from the Financial Times. These are historic moments for the world economy. I felt much the same during the emerging market financial crises of 1997 and 1998, and again during the bubble in technology stocks that burst in 2000. Today's credit crunch may, I believe, be an equally important turning point for financial markets and the world economy. Why do I believe this? Let me count the ways. First and most important, what is happening in credit markets today is a huge blow to the credibility of the Anglo-Saxon model of transactions-orientated financial capitalism. A mixture of crony capitalism and gross incompetence has been on display in the core financial markets of New York and London. From the ninja, no income, no job, no asset, subprime lending, To the placing and favourable rating of assets that turn out today to be almost impossible to understand, value or sell, these activities have been riddled with conflicts of interest and incompetence. In the subsequent era of revulsion, core financial markets have simply seized up. Second, these events have called into question the workability of securitised lending, at least in its current form. The argument for the shift to securitization, one I admit I accepted, was that it would shift the risk of term transformation, borrowing short to lend long, out of the fragile banking system onto the shoulders of those best able to bear it. What happened instead was the shifting of the risk onto the shoulders of those least able to understand it. What also occurred was a multiplication of leverage and of term transformation, not least through the banks' so-called special investment vehicles, which proved to be only notionally off-balance sheet. What we see today as a result is a rapid shrinkage of markets in asset-backed paper. Third, the crisis has opened up big questions about the roles of both central banks and regulators. How far, for example, do the responsibilities of central banks as lenders of last resort during crises stretch? Should they, as some argue, be market-makers of last resort in all credit markets? What, more precisely, should a central bank do when liquidity dries up in important markets? Equally, the crisis suggests that liquidity has been significantly underpriced. Does this mean that the regulatory framework for banks is fundamentally flawed? What is left of the idea that we can rely on financial institutions to manage risk through their own models? What, moreover, can reasonably be expected of rating agencies? A market in U.S. mortgages is, after all, hardly terra incognita. If banks and rating agencies got this wrong, what else must be brought into question? Fourth, do you remember the lecturing by U.S. officials, not least to the Japanese, about the importance of letting asset prices reach equilibrium and transparency enter markets as soon as possible? That, however, was in a far-off country. Now we see Hank Polson, U.S. Treasury Secretary, trying to organize a cartel of holders of toxic securitized assets in the super sieve. More importantly, we see the U.S. Treasury intervene directly in the rate-setting process on mortgages in an attempt to shore up the housing market. Either or both of these ideas might be good ones, though I doubt it but they are at odds with what the U.S. has historically recommended to other countries in a similar plight. Not for a long time will people listen to U.S. officials lecture on the virtues of free financial markets with a straight face. Fifth, and here we start to move from questions about the workings of the financial system to global macroeconomic implications, this crisis signals a necessary but significant re-rating of risk. It turns out, that it also represents a move towards holding more transparent and liquid assets, as one would expect and indeed hope. This correction is altogether desirable. It has, moreover, been remarkably selective. It is a striking feature of what has happened that emerging markets have emerged as a safe haven as investors run away from U.S. households. For those in emerging economies, this must be sweet revenge. But they should not cheer too soon Today's favourites may be brutally discarded tomorrow. Sixth, this event may well mark the limits to the US role as consumer of last resort in the world economy. As the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development notes in its latest economic outlook, the correction is well underway. In 2007, it forecasts, US final domestic demand will grow by just 1.9% down from 2.9% in 2006. It forecasts a further decline to growth of 1.4% next year. In both years, net exports will make a positive contribution to growth, 0.5 percentage points in 2007 and 0.4 percentage points in 2008, as the trade deficit shrinks in real terms. In this way, the U.S. is re-importing the stimulus it exported to the rest of the world in earlier years. The credit crunch is quite likely to accelerate this process, so the U.S. needs strong growth of net exports. For this reason, policymakers are relaxed about the dollar's fall, provided it does not awaken fears of rapidly rising inflation. Seventh, a U.S. recession is indeed possible. Whether one happens depends overwhelmingly on consumers. The principal counterpart of the external deficits has been the excess of spending over income by households, that has meant both negligible savings and a big jump in household debt. Mortgage debt jumped from 63% of disposable incomes in 1995 to 98% in 2005. This rising trend is unlikely to continue in a falling housing market. Unwillingness or inability to borrow on such a scale will in turn hamper the effectiveness of U.S. monetary policy, That, in turn, makes a weak dollar and strong export growth yet more important. Last but not least, this event also has big significance for the game of past the external deficits that has characterized the world economy for several decades. It has proved virtually impossible for emerging market economies to run large deficits without running into crises. Over the past decade, the U.S. filled the growing gap as ever larger borrower of last resort. But this epoch has probably now ended. Yet the surpluses being run by China and Japan, by oil exporters, and within the European Union, by Germany, continue to grow. If the world is to enjoy global macroeconomic stability, a creditworthy set of countervailing borrowers must emerge. If the U.S. ceases to increase its absorption of the growing saving surpluses generated elsewhere, which countries will be able and willing to do so? Experience teaches that big financial shocks affect patterns of lending and spending across the world. Originating as it does at the very core of the world economy, this one will surely do so too. The question is how stable and dynamic the world economy that emerges will be. Thank you for listening. To read Martin Wolf's columns online, please go to www.ft.com forward slash wolf.